So there I was. I was in my small group many years ago, and I saw this man begin to creep into my small group. Brian, go ahead and creep in over here. And my friend Eddie had invited this man, but I didn't know who this man was. I was excited to have another guy in my small group. But then I began to see this man radically fall in love with Jesus. If there's one thing I want you to know this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ still has the power to transform hearts and lives. If you know Brian's testimony, you might know that he, before he was saved, he's pretty radical. He was, he was radical. He was a lost man, very similar to mine. You're pretty lost. Yeah. We won't get into that part because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But he was, he was a protester. He was radical. He was uh, against the government and a great many things. But Jesus transformed his heart and his life. He saved him. He says, behold, I make all things new. And then Brian begins to, to lead a small group and he begins to invest his life in men. He begins to preach the gospel boldly to anyone who will listen to him. To, and that includes everyone has seen this man booming and thundering the, the mysteries of the kingdom. And, and with my favorite part about Brian, if you know Brian, is that children love him. They love him. My kids love Brian. My kids uh, don't know my birthday, but they know Brian's birthday. And so, <laughs> and so everybody loves Brian, and it's a testimony to the transformative power of the gospel, that the gospel still can save. And so it is with a... a, a a joyful heart, but a heavy heart that we are going to commission and send Brian. He's going to start, help start a college ministry at UT Arlington. And so it's a very, it's a very sacred moment, a very exciting moment. If, you, if you're part of our church family, you know that this is a serious deal. This is a commissioning. So we're going to honor what the Lord has done in Brian, and we're going to honor the future of the ministry. So go ahead and stand and extend your hands out in faith because we're going to pray for Brian. So, I thank you for this man, Jesus. I thank you for his life and his love for you. I pray a spirit of grace and power would come upon him. Lord, that he would represent you as an ambassador that the kingdom would advance and many, many, many people would come to know you through his life and ministry, that he would be a gentle and powerful force for your kingdom, that your grace and spirit would come upon him in a mighty way. And God, you would do an incredible work in Arlington to this man. We thank you, God, for his heart and his life and his friendship. Help him, Jesus. Help him. Be with him and go before him. Amen. Amen. The reason, the reason that we're talking about and commissioning Brian this morning is because his life so mirrors Saul of Tarsus. You know, we're in the middle of our Acts of the Apostles series, and this is when the shift comes in the book. 
when it goes from Peter and the Jerusalem apostles to now we move into the ministry of Saul of Tarsus, who would be later called Paul. And I find it interesting that when God gets involved, he'll change your name. You know, Saul was the first king of Israel. Correction, God was. But Saul was chosen as the king because the people wanted to be like the other nations. So they chose a donkey herder, Saul of Tarsus. But he's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a name to name your children. But when God got involved, humility gets involved. And the name of the king is now changed to what? Paul. Little. God has a way of keeping us humble. But it is through humility that the anointing comes. So we see this man, Saul of Tarsus, who's the farthest from being humble. Do you know how the story starts? Saul of Tarsus literally has a piece of paper in his hand. And this paper is a religious document that gives him permission to kill the Christians to imprison them, to bring them back from Damascus and all the other cities and Decapolis and Tyre and Sidon. Bring these Christians back and imprison them, both the women and the children. And Saul is thinking that he's doing God a favor. He's thinking that he's working for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You ever been wrong about something? You ever been just absolutely dead wrong about something? Have you ever just gotten it wrong? I'm just for, for a joke, I've told this story before, but it so accurately describes the season of my life when I got it dead wrong, I'm gonna tell it again. So I was in school and I loved comic books. You like comic books? You like Spider-Man, Superman, maybe Batman? No? Okay, next kid. I'm going to get this kid a comic book. I love comic books. I love Batman and Superman. And I used to draw them. And I, I drew Superman all the time. And I was fairly good. And I would draw a uh, pretty elaborate S. But I didn't know it was an S. I actually thought it was Kryptonian language. Yeah. I know, I'm dyslexic. I know, that's a mess. So I thought that that wasn't an S. I didn't know it was an S. I thought it was a Kryptonian symbol. So I'm in school and I see a kid draw a stupid little triangle with an S and be like, do you like my Superman, Kyle? And I'm like, why did you draw a triangle with an S on it? And the guy looked at me with this, because it's Superman. S for Superman? And I'm like, he doesn't have an S on his chest. <gasps> he does. Oh my God, it's an S. Have you ever been wrong about something? You ever been just so dead wrong about something? You see something some way, but it's actually the opposite. This is Saul of Tarsus. He thinks these Christians are anathema, the cursed of God. He thinks that God is against them. He thinks that God wants to smite them and to remove them from the planet. And he wants to do this for God. And he begins to do it. He's guilty of all, all the blood of the Christians in the area. He makes sure that they're wiped out. He consented at the stoning of Stephen, the deacon. 
Stephen was a deacon in the early church. He begins to preach this great message to the religious leaders. They get mad and Saul goes, here, let me collect all of your coats, your outer garments. I'll hold them so you can throw rocks faster and more accurately. Yeah, Saul was wrong. And he was the exact person that none of us would choose to build the early church. But oh, the wisdom and wisdom of God. Now you know why Jesus can look at the multitudes and say, love your enemies. Some of the people that are most hostile to the gospel can be its greatest advocates. Some of the people that are the farthest from the kingdom of God that you think will never come in, they will never be in the ministry, they'll never have a ministry, they can never do things for the kingdom of God, they have a past, they have such a horrid previous life. Friends, if you know one thing about the gospel, it is that it is the power of God unto salvation, that it can change Now, we in our society, we think education can inform us. And if we make mistakes, we think the correctional facilities can reform us. But there's only one thing that can transform us, and that's the gospel. And yes, I think we live in difficult times and dark times, but they're no different than the times of the Apostle Paul. Think of ancient Rome. You think our time is barbaric? Not on your life. It was times of barbarisms and injustices, tyrannical rules of dictators, proconsuls and and, and procurators could just make ad fiat statements and people were put to death by whim and circumstance. Rome was a cruel and tyrannical place, the empire. Colosseums were filled with bloody men hacking each other to pieces for the whims of the crowds. The temples were filled with hedonism, with all kinds of sexual promiscuity for for coin. It was a dark time, a barbaric time. It was a divided time. You think it's divided now. There was Greek and Roman, slave and free, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, stoic, hedonistic, divided on every line, barbaric, cruel, and unjust. And God's answer was an apostle of love and forgiveness. You could sum up Paul as an apostle of love, that the love of God has been shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit, that he was forgiven much. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Love and forgiveness, Jesus says, he who loves much, forgives much. He who forgives much is forgiven much. If we want to look in the future, friends, we must look at the past. There's so many lessons that we can learn from the life of Saul of Tarsus. But the number one one is this. If any man, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the power of the gospel, that your old life can be a new life, that you can be a new creation in Christ Jesus. The things that you used to do and the things that you used to love, you used to serve in your old master and your old way, we're talking about a new birth 
and no one is beyond the scope and power of the new birth. Anyone, anywhere, whosoever, whosoever will, let him come. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And so we see this. Acts chapter 9. Then Saul was still breathing death threats. Verse 1. It's in the New Testament. Death threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Remember, the Bible is never boring. It's exciting, folks. We have death threats and murders. We have great intensities here. Now Saul was consenting to the death at the time, so the great persecution arose at the church at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad. You see this? Persecution spread the church to all of these different places. And Saul went out after them to collect them, to bring them back and imprison them. And I find it really interesting geographically because he would have had to travel north. Saul's leaving Jerusalem. He travels north and right to he gets to the area of the present Golan Heights, which is the boundary from the Jewish territory to the Gentile territory. Right when Saul of Tarsus steps into Gentile territory, there is a light brighter than the noonday sun. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, who was blinded by this great radiant light brighter than the noonday sun, says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Do you find it hard to kick against the pricks? best response to the, in the history of God speaking to an individual in the Bible. What would you have me to do, Lord? Oh, if you could learn the wisdom of those two questions that Paul asks. Although his heart is filled with zeal and religious and fanaticism, he thinks he's doing God a service, but in reality, he doesn't even know God. Because his first question, who are you, Lord? The most important question that you could ask in your life. Who is God? Who are you, Lord? I am absolutely convinced that Jesus is God in the flesh. That if you know who Jesus is, you'll know who God is. You remember those books? It would be like history for dummies. I used to have to read a lot of those books because I wasn't good at algebra. Algebra for dummies didn't help very much. Jesus is God for dummies. He's helping us understand the majesty of who God is. The Bible says that all of God is in Jesus. All of the Godhead is in Jesus in bodily form. That Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you welcome me, you welcome God. I and my Father are one. The most important question you could ask this morning, who is God? The answer is Jesus. To know that he is God for us today. His name, Emmanuel, God with us. And then 
so important today for us as believers of the faith. Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Do you know what Jesus has called you to do? There's nothing more important than that. Did Jesus really call you to your job or are you just doing it to pay the bills? Did Jesus really call you to your occupation or did you just happen, happenstance choose it? Or you got offered and so you accepted. Lord, what would you have me to do? Arise, go to Damascus and wait. And for three days, he sat in the dark, blind, alone. Three days. Then enters the fellowship. The Holy Spirit called Ananias. Go. Go to Saul of Tarsus, for he has received a vision of you coming. For he is my chosen vessel to bear my name before kings and magistrates. Now, Ananias was a little reluctant. And before you get too high and mighty, you'd be reluctant too. Anybody want to sign up for a Bible study with Osama bin Laden? Yeah, he, Ananias was reluctant. And there's a lot of reasons. Saul was among all of his brethren the most zealous. He was a... a, a uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, blameless, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Above all his contemporaries, he excelled. He was a capital man. He was born in the ancient capital of Tarsus. He, he ministered in the religious capital of Jerusalem. He sat right under the greatest Gamamel, the greatest rabbinical mind. He was an intimidating man. He was an educated man. He was a wealthy man. He was an affluent man. And, Ananias, and, and he was an aggressive man. He was killing the Christians. And God called Ananias to minister to him. Sometimes the people that you think are farthest from the gospel are actually closest to the gospel. I believe God is calling you just like Ananias went to Paul. To Saul of Tarsus, God's calling you to minister to your Hindu neighbor, to your Muslim friend, to your homosexual relative. God is calling you to reach the people that you think are farthest from the gospel where in reality they are closest to the gospel. And I think in heaven, everyone's going to go want to talk to Paul. I want to talk to Ananias. What was that like? I think he would begin to describe what the historians say that I was really scared. I was really nervous to go talk to Saul of Tarsus, but I knew Jesus was calling me to do it. And so to describe this situation, let's look at what's, what Saul looked like. Do you know that history says that he was short? He was a short, stocky man with bow legs, a unibrow, a hook nose, basically like Danny DeVito. Maybe that's why he was single. And so respectfully, but yet he was this aggressive, powerful, zealous man. And Ananias was obedient. Aren't you grateful for the people in your life that were faithful as messengers of the gospel to you? 
For you see, Saul of Tarsus, he repented, he believed, he was healed, he was baptized, and then Ananias laid hands on him, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we have this this man who was breathing out threatenings and havocs to the early church, now being the founder of the early church. He was now beginning the one to, to plant the church in Derby and Iconium and Corinth and Antioch and in Rome and in all over the ancient Roman Empire. This capital man began, began to be the king of the gospel cities in a sense. He was a capital man. But he is a testimony to a life converted under the transformative power of the gospel. But it didn't just stop with Ananias. If you know your history in the New Testament, there was someone else who came into Saul of Tarsus' life. Because this is what happened. Saul took off like a bottle rocket. He immediately was converted. Then the next day he's like, you know what we should do? We should go into the synagogues and preach that Jesus is the son of God. No, Saul, you have to go to Bible college. Immediately, Saul of Tarsus is in the synagogue preaching that Jesus is Lord, son of the living God, the most high in the flesh. Pretty radical guy. People would have been scared and nervous of him. I know what that's like. And yet, someone came into Saul's life, Barnabas. Thank God for Ananias. Thank God for Barnabas. For it was Barnabas who took Saul to meet the disciples. It was Barnabas who extended that right hand of fellowship to someone who was on the outside and considered too radical to be brought in for someone who had too much of a past, too much of a history. Barnabas extended fellowship. And in this time of great upheaval, we need to be offering and extending fellowship to people. Our weapons, friends, our forgiveness and fellowship, we don't wage war like the world does. We have nothing but forgiveness and fellowship to offer. For look what Ananias offered Saul of Tarsus. He called him Brother Saul. First words out of his mouth, Brother Saul. He offered him fellowship. He offered him forgiveness. Think about it. Saul's last face that he had seen for three days in the dark was the radiant, majestic face of Christ. And the next face that he saw was Ananias offering forgiveness. Are those one and the same? A face of forgiveness in a time of bitterness and rebellion? Those are our weapons, friends. Fellowship and forgiveness. But we cannot, just like Saul could not go along alone, we cannot go alone. I'm reminded of the great trees on the west coast of California. Anybody ever seen the sequoia trees? You seen them? Enormous trees. They're huge. They're, this tree particularly is 20 stories tall. It's 35 feet in diameter. It's an enormous tree. But notice it's not alone. Did you know that most people, when they come and they talk about these trees, they ask the same question, how deep are the roots? 
And people would think that the roots would go down very deep to support the tree. That is actually not the case. That these trees send out their roots and they interlock with other sequoia trees. That these trees can only grow this large and this strong in community. That when the winds come and the storms come against these trees, it is only because they have interlocked and interwoven roots that they are with able to stand the storms. And it is the same way. Saul of Tarsus was able to grow into the apostle Paul, an apostle of love and forgiveness, is because he had his brother Ananias and his brother Barnabas. Fellowship was the soil condition in which apostolic growth could take place. And it's the same way. You need to be in small groups. You need to have fellowship now more than ever. As we see the day approaching, you need to be in small groups. You need to be in fellowship with other believers. You need to allow them to strengthen you. And, and it is through their relationship with you that God will birth a calling into who you're called to be and what you're called to do. But I know that many among us have just like Saul on the road to Damascus, you've heard the call. You've heard the call of Jesus. I remember exactly where I was. I was on the hillside in 2003. I was all alone, I was reading this book. And as clear as I'm talking to you now, I heard him, he said, if you just read this book and teach this book, I will take care of everything else. If you read this book and teach this book, I will take care of everything else. And Jesus called me to himself. He called me into the ministry. And I've tried. And I believe Jesus is calling you. I believe for many of you, he's been calling you for a while. Be like Paul who says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Be like Paul who when he made the, met the great I am Jesus of Nazareth, he can have his own I am. I am a debtor to my brothers, both the Gentile and the Greek. I am ready to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. His I am leads to our I am. And if you have felt his calling, whether it is in the morning or in the night, if you have felt his calling to serve him in a greater way, then you need to respond and be obedient to the call. For the call is from him and will not go away. It will only get stronger and stronger. Have you heard the Lord's call over your life? Now you might ask, what does this call look like? What does this call look like? Is it just for the full-time pastors? No, no, friends. It's a call to serve the Lord into a greater capacity. It's a call in which all of us are called and to a greater love and obedience to him. Now, some of us are called to lead small groups. Some of us are called to plant churches. Some of us are called to pastor churches. Some of us are called to raise our children in God-fearing ways. But have you heard the call? Have you heard Jesus calling you? Saul, Saul, 
Why do you persecute me? Do you find it hard to kick against your conscience? We must be listening to the call. I want us to look at verse 28. So he was with them in Jerusalem. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Coming in and going out. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know that this is an Old Testament phrase. Coming in means to worship. Oh, how we just came into the presence of God in that song. Is he worthy? He is. Is he worthy? He is. You felt the manifold presence of God. You felt the Holy Spirit in this room. We came in to worship. That's why we're here. It's one of the reasons the church exists is to worship God. Coming in. But going out is something totally different, friends. Going out. Going out in the Old Testament was to make war, to advance the kingdom of Israel against the enemies of God. But going out in the New Testament, as we see it here in Jerusalem, with the apostles, with Saul, with the disciples coming in and going out, that means a going out with the evangelism. Going out with not with a, a, a physical sword, but with the sword of the Spirit. For the Old Testament Psalm says that the praises of the Lord shall be in our mouth and his double-edged sword in our hand. We must be coming in and going out. Now, I, we're very good at coming in. This church is really, really good at worshiping. But I think we have a lot to learn in going out. But we're going out. We want to plant 30 churches in this city alone. We want to go out. We want to advance the call. And many of you have been called to join us. And we want to see what that looks like. We want to process that call with you. We want to invite you and, and to train you and make sure you're in small groups. Make sure that you're learning in small groups. But some of you have been in small groups and you felt this call to go out and to take this city for God. Just like Saul of Tarsus did. One man walks in Philippi, but with the power of the gospel transformed it. One man goes into Corinth with the power of the gospel transformed it. Antioch, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, all of these cities. One man, the power of the gospel. Is this Lytle? Is this Bernie? Is this Jeddah? Is this Israel? One man in the power of the gospel. 